It's the 50th anniversary this week of the uprising by Columbia University students in 1968. For comment on what happened and about the lessons for the left today, we turn to Eric Foner. Of course, he's the award-winning historian of the Reconstruction era. He's written many books. I think my favorite right now is The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery. It won the Pulitzer Prize for History and the Bancroft Prize. He's on the editorial board of The Nation, and he writes for the magazine, also for The New York Times and The London Review of Books. He has both a BA and a PhD from Columbia, and he's taught there for more than 30 years. Eric Foner, welcome back. Uh, thank you, John. Columbia in, in April and May 1968 set the template, followed by, you know, a hundred other schools in the next couple of years. SDS, Students for Democratic Society, organizes students against the war in Vietnam and for black issues. Then students occupy the campus administration building and protest against university complicity in the war. The school calls the police. The police attack the students indiscriminately, violently. Thousands of previously unengaged students are shocked to join a student strike. Eventually, the school makes some concessions. Maybe the president resigns. Columbia students did it first. So the big question is, how did it happen at Columbia? First of all, of course, we had been preceded by the Berkeley Free Speech Movement a couple of years earlier, Yes, which, however, as you said, did not actually occupy buildings, but it did show the possibility of mass organizing on campus. You know, one of the things we tend to forget is that up until the 1960s, campuses, college campuses, were bastions of conservatism. Mostly, a much smaller number of people went to college. They tended to be from the um, wealthier parts of the uh, society. So the idea of young people taking the lead in radical action was quite unusual. But why did it happen at Columbia? There was a kind of perfect storm. You had these two mass movements in the society at that time, the black struggle and uh, the anti-war movement. But at Columbia, they both reached onto the campus in very specific ways. The, you know, one of the big issues was the university's plan to build a gymnasium in a public park right next to Columbia, uh, which was used by uh, residents of Harlem, and it was sort of taking public land. And they also, you know, uh, had a design whereby uh, local residents would sort of go in the bottom and use some little uh, separate and unequal part of the gym. Uh, the rest of it would be for uh, the Columbia students. Uh, so that seemed to sort of fit into a long pattern of Columbia's uh, poor relations, to say the least, with its surrounding community, mostly inhabited by black and Hispanic uh, people. And then the anti-war movement, uh, of course, which had galvanized uh, hundreds of thousands of students. But on Columbia campus, there was this thing called the Institute for Defense Analysis, where some professors were doing basically war research right on campus. So in other words, these broad social public issues also had a very immediate local resonance, and I think that had a lot to do with the mobilization on campus. I spoke with Mark Rudd recently, who was the leader of SDS at, at Columbia, and uh, he emphasized what he called building the base, the, the sort of daily work of knocking on dorm doors and uh, talking to students who weren't political, who weren't engaged, who, who were uninformed or apathetic. He said he had started out himself as an uninformed and apathetic student, but uh, an SDS elder uh, knocked on his door, Dave Gilbert, in fact. And, oh, my goodness. 
and convinced him that he should become an activist. And it, it seemed like Columbia did have some very experienced and uh, uh, talented student organizers. Mark Red said they were uh, red diaper babies, children of, of activists from the earlier generation. Yeah, well, he's absolutely right about that. I mean, I've noticed, having taught here for a long time, as you said, that sometimes uh, modern day, or let's say in the 80s or 90s, or even today, modern day student activists on campus are a little bit intimidated by the sort of memory of 1968. You know, uh, you don't get thousands of people out on the campus nowadays. And I always said, you know, that was the end result of years of organizing. You know, when SDS held a meeting, let's say, in 1966, 20 people would come. It wasn't like this suddenly popped up out of nowhere. It required, it built slowly, student activism built slowly, and it did require a lot of broadening of the base, as Mark said. Even before that, uh, as you may know, you know, my, myself and some of my good friends, Jonah Raskin, this is in the early 60s, had formed a what they call the campus political party uh, action, which was sort of parallel to Slate at Berkeley and uh, one of them at Michigan. This was sort of the uh, prehistory to SDS, and uh, so and we had done organizing on campus. So this had been going on for a good while, and therefore by '68 there were a good number of students who had been aroused to political consciousness, and that certainly helped this movement get going. But then it did attract a lot of people who just the the movement itself, the action itself, kind of galvanized support, as well as opposition. The campus was completely divided in the week that uh, students occupied five buildings on campus. Then, as you mentioned, when the police stormed the campus and actually did much more physical harm to bystanders than to students in the buildings because they decided to just clear the campus when there were thousands of students out there watching what was going on, and clearing the campus just meant catching up with anybody who couldn't run fast enough and beating them over the head with a billy club. And that sort of shifted public opinion on campus completely in favor of the uh, student occupiers and against the administration. I believe the uh, the New York Police Department treated the black students who had occupied one building differently from the way they treated the white students. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, uh, we are right next to Harlem, and there was always this fear, whether valid or not, that if anything happened to the black students, Harlem, quote-unquote, the real Harlem or an imaginary Harlem, would kind of storm the campus. And they didn't want tales going out of black students being assaulted by the basically fundamentally all-white police force at that time. Also, the black students had gotten support from black public officials, black members of the city council, black public figures like, you know, H. Rap Bound had been to campus, Stokely Carmichael had visited. So, yes, they treated the black students with uh, kid gloves. They, They were removed from their building very peacefully. One thing I will say, though, is the black students who were given plenty of opportunities by the administration to cut their own deal refused to do so. One of the lessons of 68 is the importance of, uh, to use an old uh, phrase, black-white cooperation. Yes, the blacks said, we want our own building. This was the height of black power. But they stuck with the demands of the entire movement and did not, uh, you know, abandon the uh, the white students. And I um, I give them credit for that. They saw that they were part of a larger thing, not just a, an autonomous uh, black presence. Well, let's talk about some other lessons for today's uh, movements for social justice and, and climate action. One which seems to be 
build the base. There's no substitute for talking to the uncommitted and convincing the uninformed or the apathetic and recruiting them. You said a black-white cooperation in unity. Uh, I also want to think just for a minute about the the media. Uh, how did the media do in the, uh, how the mainstream media do in in 1968? Uh, not very well. Uh, I'd say they propagated a lot of fake news about what was going on at uh, Columbia. The, the worst offender was the New York Times. The publisher of the New York Times, Salzberger, was on the board of trustees of Columbia. And uh, the Times basically portrayed this as, you know, an assault on Western civilization. The university must be above politics. Of course, the university was doing war research, so mm. therefore it had already made a political commitment just the wrong way. And then when the, you know, one of the things that shocked students, secondly, after seeing the police unleashed, was that the next day the New York Times uh, reported that everything had been done peacefully. You know, there hadn't been any uh, injuries until there was so much complaint about that that they had to publish a revised story saying, oh, yeah, well, actually, quite a few people were injured. We didn't notice that at first. So, you know, the, the awareness of how the power elite operates, to borrow a phrase from C. Wright Mills, uh, was also one of the educational elements here. So the media did not do very well except for the Columbia media. The Columbia student newspaper, The Spectator, was excellent every single day in saying what was going on. And the Columbia student radio station, WKCR, uh, broadcast, you know, whose signal goes out over the whole metropolitan area. They covered what was happening 24 hours a day. And people in the New York uh, area who wanted to know what was happening tuned into WKCR, often for the first time, the student radio station, not uh, not the CBS, NBC, or the New York Times. We've been focusing on the events of a, a couple of weeks and the year or two leading up to them. Let's talk for a minute about the next couple of years. The problem for the Columbia SDS leaders and national SDS after 1968, really for the whole anti-war movement, was that we weren't ending the war. We were right about the war. We had huge protests. We had eventually millions of people, but the war went on. And some of our friends concluded that nonviolent mass protest doesn't work. We need to do more. We need to be more militant. We need to move from protest uh, to resistance. And that meant to some of our friends uh, going underground and uh, engaging in, in symbolic uh, bombing attacks on things like the Pentagon and the Capitol building. Of course, yeah. that, did, that didn't end the war either. So the big issue is how do you sustain the commitment in view of the recalcitrance and the power of the status quo? Well, first of all, I, of course, I know who you are talking about, and several of the leaders of the weathermen, as they call themselves, did come directly out of the Columbia, Columbia uprising. And, of course, at least one of those killed in the townhouse accidental explosion in 1970, I guess it was, in New York City, where they were making bombs and uh, made a mistake, was Ted Gold, who was a Columbia student, active in 68. You know, and I think that was a complete mistake. And, uh, of course, the student movement peaked really in 1970, not 68, with the invasion of Cambodia yeah. and massive demonstrations all over the country. Uh, you know, in 70, uh, things spread not just, you know, it wasn't just Berkeley or Harvard or Michigan or Columbia, but Kent State. 
and many other places like that, which were much more working class in the composition of their student body. The National Guard was on many campuses uh, in, uh, in uh, 1970. Columbia closed down again in 1970. And it's very unfortunate that some of those leaders of the Columbia uprising were no longer around, so to speak, to provide leadership uh, two years later when, when all that happened. What is to be done, uh, to coin a phrase? You know, I mean, I think, think we need to go back to the abolitionist movement for a model. You know, they, they did everything. They worked politically. They uh, gave speeches. They circulated petitions. Uh, they ran candidates for office. But, but they also worked underground, so to speak. They uh, broke the law by helping fugitive slaves, uh, things like that. In other words, you can work both above ground and below ground at the same time. And I think the uh, weathermen didn't quite understand that, and uh, that was a dead end, I'm sorry to say, which had very uh, deleterious uh, consequences. Last question, who do you think is doing a good job on the left now. We have big protest movement around gun control, around racist policing, around climate change. What do you see there? All those people are doing a good job. I mean, you have mass uh, movements about all sorts of issues now, which is all to the good. President Trump, as you know, has galvanized a very, uh, very vital opposition, uh, which has not lost its energy in the last uh, year or so. But I do think it's important, uh, even the Columbia, you know, uprising, which linked the black movement and the anti-war movement, it's important for these movements to sort of somehow speak to each other, come together, work together. You know, that's one of the lessons of the 60s, the importance of doing that. And I think if you have, uh, there's too many movements that are based on a single issue which don't quite connect up with other such movements. Not all of them are like that, but uh, there are quite a few now, I think, like that. And that leads to fragmentation and ultimately, I think, to disappointment. Eric Foner, historian and Columbia alumnus. Eric, thanks for talking with us today. It's always great to have you on the show. Always good to talk to you, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.